This is Angela Benoit, host of the Continuing Education series, a podcast we produce as a benefit for the members of the French Language Division and those interested in becoming members. This series strives to offer educational content about the craft of French to English and English to French translation and about our division. Today's episode is about a book and its translator. The book is Comments on the North American Travels of La Rochefoucauld-Liancourt, 1794-1798 and it was translated into English by Carolyn Young. Carolyn, thank you. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks very much for the invitation, Angela. So, Carolyn, should we start a little bit about the background of this book, um, these selections of La Rochefoucauld-Liancourt's North American Travels, were compiled into one book by Daniel Vaugelade. Uh, what are the unique characteristics of this book? Well, so... Daniel Vaugelade is a teacher of history in a town very close to where La Rochefoucauld-Liancourt was born in the north of Paris. He did an amazing job culling, I think it was eight huge volumes of the original travel journals down to their most compelling core, um, making them more relevant for a modern audience. And the, the full set has actually been published twice, but due to some timing issues and also probably the, the unwieldy length, it's remained a widely undiscovered gem. Um, to me personally, this book is, is really an exciting extension of my own studies at the University of Virginia, which is um, an East Coast school founded by Thomas Jefferson with a, an excellent reputation in um, political history education. Um, wow. So what, what should make comments on the North American travels of La Rochefoucauld-Liancourt so groundbreaking for that field in American history and, and French-American relations um, is that it's a collection of observations on a very young United States uh, written by an exiled French nobleman, and it predates the, the really famous work that everyone uses by Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, Democracy in America. Not only that, it's, it's actually a little more accessible, and um, you know, it's easier to read and engage with, and it's more objective. So if you've read the Tocqueville, you know it can be a slog to get through sometimes, and he has some really obvious biases. Um, very true, very true. Yeah. So uh, the La Rochefoucauds have a long history of being um, just that kind of, of person. It, they're very active, adventurous, and at times revolutionary. François-Alexandre Frédéric de La Rochefoucauld-Liancourt, who's the author of these journals, and I'll refer to him simply as Liancourt. Um, he was part of the family that protected the philosophes. His mother invited great thinkers into her salon on a regular basis. His mm -hmm. grandfather openly opposed despotism and was basically confined to his home, um, La Roche-Guillon, it's a chateau, um, for his actions in that regard. Mm -hmm. Another of his forebears, François VI, uh, had been briefly confined in the Bastille for opposing Richelieu. You know, in, in some, Leon Cour has a really unique political philosophy uh, running through his veins, whether you call it socialist or democratic or just human. Uh, his whole family has this history of being an exciting political family. And um, since he was in exile in the United States and he was really bored with the sort of foo-foo um, 
other rich exiles in the Philadelphia area. He had nothing but time on his hands to devote to creating this literary snapshot of the early United States. Wow, that's amazing. Now uh, let's talk about the translation a little bit. How did this project come to you? How did you find it? How did you become involved? Uh, so another proud alum of the University of Virginia is actually the publisher, Jim Thompson, and he found me through my old French advisor. So yes. it was, it was you know, just happenstance and good luck, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I was really lucky to have such a great advisor in the French department at UVA, Gladys Saunders. She still works there. She, she's always been very encouraging of her students to go deep into whatever aspect of language interests them. You know, she, she is really an avid linguist in the you know, sort of phonetic side of things, um, you know, the really detailed, more scientific side, I guess you can call it, but she's not, mm-hmm. she doesn't discriminate. That's, mm-hmm. um, you know, just because she likes that doesn't mean that's the only way to engage with language to her. And, and she continues to support that in me even now. That's awesome. That's so, that's so wonderful when people support us throughout our careers like that. Now, while mm-hmm. chatting about this episode, um, we the first time we spoke about it was actually last month at the HE conference in San Francisco. You mentioned to me that Yonkul's surprisingly modern-sounding French um, was one of the very interesting parts of, of this book. Now, um, I was wondering if we could hear a little bit of it. Oh, absolutely. With pleasure. And you know, before I jump into... Um I'll give you the first chapter. It's called The Liberties of Philadelphia. It's one of the rare sections that's a little more subjective, but it, it does set mm-hmm. the stage for the book. Um, but I'll preface this with saying I translate French legal texts on a more regular basis, so mm-hmm. maybe to me it sounds very modern. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you can judge for yourself. Um, sure. Okay, so this is the, the first paragraph or two of the first chapter. Cinq mois de séjour à Philadelphie m'ont valu quelques connaissances préliminaires sur les États-Unis, qui me feront faire avec plus de fruits le voyage que j'entreprends. J'ai eu le bonheur de me lier avec un jeune Anglais aimable, instruit, doux, de bonne compagnie et passionné pour les voyages. Son nom est Guimard. Il est d'une de ces familles jadis françaises dont nos absurdes querelles de religion ont enrichi l'Angleterre. Le désir de connaître l'Amérique, la seule emmenée dans cette partie du monde, sans que le projet d'y gagner de l'argent y soit entré pour rien, ce qui n'est pas commun. D'une fortune aisée, sans être considérable, il se trouve assez riche et son esprit, tout avis de connaissance, ne le rendrait pas plus que son caractère propre aux occupations par lesquelles la fortune s'accroît quelquefois très promptement dans ce pays. » Je pense que c'est un des plus agréables compagnons de voyage que j'ai pu trouver et je ferai mon possible pour qu'à la fin de l'été, il pense de même de moi. Mm. Uh, so to me, that's pretty straightforward and it gives a great introduction um, just to Leon Kuhl's mindset, his it's philosophy, a... his, his, his nature, if you want to say that. Mm. It is extremely straightforward. It, it flows. Uh, that was beautiful. Uh, yeah, and that's that's how the entire book goes, which is incredible to me, considering some of the topics he covers. You know, he goes at length. He goes on at length about a very specific manufacturing process, like the machinery and how it works, and and even that was just a pleasure to translate. 
Wow, a pleasure reading about machinery. That that sounds that sounds fascinating. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm curious. Um, so, what were the translation challenges that you encountered um, during this project? Oh gosh, there were there were a few. As, as fun as it was to work on, um, the biggest challenge was as I'm sure is true for any book length project, uh, just the breadth of specialized knowledge covered. Um, mm -hmm. So for instance, um, chapter 8 is titled Maple Sugar from the Genesee. And if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was only about three pages in a standard Word document. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, besides going into great detail about the various stages of turning maple sap into useful products, it also encompasses some specialized vocabulary for herbal healing treatments, land distribution and incorporation, and wow. a small list of detailed species of wildlife. Just so I, can in those imagine, three I can imagine pages. those were three pages that were, took a very long time to translate. I can imagine. Actually, I think, I think the <laughs> hardest thing for me in that chapter was, um, was actually talking about the maple sugar because I didn't realize just how many byproducts there are of the uh, from uh, the sugaring process. You know, really? everybody knows about maple sugar, and they also know about maple yeah. syrup, but apparently they it. also make vinegar from it too. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah. Oh, that took me forever. I was like, that can't be right. Vinegar. There must be another meaning to vinegar that I'm not aware of yet. <laughs> Maple vinegar. No, that sounds that's like what it something meant. straight out of a hipster kitchen or something. I know, right? <laughs> Maybe we're onto something. Maybe we've got the next big culinary idea here. Yeah, <laughs> bringing it back. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, gosh, but yeah. So that was one word that that surprised me. And my gosh, there's so many. Um, another word that gave me a really surprising fight was raquette. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. embedded in a description of a meeting of Tuscarora Indians, and it's a hot weather theme, and everyone's gathered under this prepared arbor to be introduced to an American general who um, is you know, showing Bianco around. Okay. And there's some, some young folks who can't find one of the you know, official spots in the pseudo-stadium to sit, um, so they, they're standing or leaning on their raquette. Wow. Um, you know, having grown up on the East Coast, I have a pretty solid background knowledge on Native Americans. Um, you know, it's something they teach in elementary school. But this term really stumped me. You know, it, it couldn't possibly mean tennis racket. And the only other translated terms I was hitting upon were snow-related, which just didn't mm -hmm. make logical sense to me because it's, it's, it's the summer. It's really hot weather. Mm -hmm. I must have spent a good three or four hours all told just hunting down the key to this particular descriptor word. Mm -hmm. um, in the end, I found that even though it was summer, it was most likely, you know, an out-of-season use for their snow apparatus. That, you know, they were mm -hmm. leaning on it like it had a dual purpose. Mm -hmm. So uh, we ended up calling them snowshoes, but it could also have been a travois. It's a type of sled, a dog sled. You know, okay. so it's still a mystery to me. I think I chose the correct word, most mm -hmm. likely word, but you know, it could be one or the other. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a challenge! Yeah. Um, oh, units of measure were a more constant struggle. You know, these these mm. single words popped up here and there, but 
units of measure were everywhere because, like I said, he was trying to be objective and he was talking about a lot about the economy and the land use. Um, so in, in chapter 14, which details his stay at Fort Niagara, he's describing bodies of water using a measurement that twas. I think I'm saying that right, T-O-I-S-E. Mm. Yeah, this is old, oh, do you know it? Um, it sounds like, I, I, I'm not very familiar with it, but it sounds like the way we, it would be said, at least. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's an old mm. unit of measure. It, it equals six mm. feet. And it, I, okay. I guess it's the same in English as in French. Um, but, I, you know, I, I've never come across that before. Mm. Uh, Chapter 29, which is a perilous navigation to Norfolk, includes a unit of measure related to the export of tobacco, a buku, mm-hmm. which is not only an unusual word for me to see, it was also misspelled. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, so B-O-U-C-A-U-D, like dog, D, is a word for shrimp, like the sea mm-hmm. animal, shrimp. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. B-O-U. C-A-U-T, like Thomas, means a cask, which is clearly what we needed here, a cask, not a shrimp. Okay. You can't have a shrimp of tobacco. A shrimp of tobacco. <laughs> <That would be weird. laughs> yeah. So, I mean, luckily, I didn't, I keep saying we, I didn't have to face all of these crazy vocabulary challenges alone. I had a, an amazing editor, Eric Bai, um, and his own translation and editing, editing experience were invaluable um, mm-hmm. to complement my political history background. Eric nice. um, was the editor of a journal about uh, muskets and, and firearms from the same period that this book was written. And uh, he, he had done a lot of his own research just for fun on um, Leon Kuhl, the time period Leon Kuhl lived in. And so he, it was great working with him. We really complemented each other. Nice, nice. I can imagine that the uh, the synergy between a translator and editor for this this type of project is absolutely essential. Oh my goodness, yes. I ac- actually started the project with a co-translator from a university mm-hmm. um, who was more of an academic, but again, she she had a specialty in this time period, and unfortunately, it just it didn't work out because she didn't have a lot of experience translating, and she just okay. couldn't keep up with the the deadlines. Mm. Yeah, so it was, it was fantastic to find an editor who had experience as a translator as well. So he was he was really used to the rhythm of things and um, and also the the background knowledge we needed. Very cool. Uh, yeah. So another fun thing, um, speaking of specific words that we had to hunt for, there was a mm-hmm. very particular clothing term, a bunny aquaf. I um. Neither of us really knew exactly what was going on there. So I actually reached out to the folks at the wig maker shop in Colonial Williamsburg through Facebook of all things. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, they were really helpful. They were so kind to um, point me towards some resources and and offer a few suggestions just to confirm that this, the um, the terminology we needed for this really outmoded kind of head covering, um, it's the coif in English, C-O-I-F. Okay, okay. wow. Oh, now going off script, 
<laughs> I can imagine going off script here a little bit, um, and you tell me if it's possible or not, but maybe we can find a picture um, of this co-autistic um, online with the episode for the listeners. Oh, yeah, I, I did possible. have a picture. That's what, I, that's what really um, helped me with that. Is, you okay. know, I grew up near Colonial Williamsburg, so I knew they would have this kind of resource. Um, but there's a bunch of um, old illustrations, you know, like old books, basically okay. like the precursor to fashion magazines, um, and mm-hmm. they have little labels in them. So I'll, I'll try and hunt down the one I used for this. But yeah, okay. ooh, that was a that would be that was, cool. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good that was a fun challenge. <laughs> Very nice. Um, let's see. Oh, I do have one more. I could go on all day about this. It was just such a fun project. Um, but there was a more painful problem for me in the form of a pronoun in um, Chapter 27. It's on Charlestown. Mm-hmm. So, of course, this is a section on 18th century South Carolina. So it addresses slavery. Okay. Leon Cool, I'll, you know, spoiler alert, Leon Cool considered it a barbaric practice, and he, you know, he, he fought really hard to explain to people, even just from an economic standpoint, how stupid it was to mm-hmm. enslave people. Um, but he was doing his best to make a, an objective account. So he did a really great job, especially in this really emotional sort of subject, mm-hmm. keeping his observations early in the chapter separate from his feelings later. Um, so therein lies the, lay the problem. I found myself questioning in these more objective sections mm-hmm. how to translate the pronoun used to refer to slaves, you know, it's ease, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, lui, or things like that. So do I use okay. he, she, hers, his, or do I use it? Because Whoa. to the people at the time, Slaves for property. Oh, it's horrible. I can't. Oh, it's, oh, it gives me a stomachache just to say it. But yeah. you know, he was trying to be very objective, and so yeah. Eric and I, the editor and I, had a really serious email exchange about this. You know, what was the contemporary practice at the time? Yeah. What would Leon Cool have intended? What wow. was the most appropriate way to translate mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. period text? You know, the yeah. pronoun in the period text. It, yeah. it took us almost no time to quickly, you know, we quickly decided to stick with the uh-huh. human pronouns he and she. But, oh yeah. my goodness, you know, what a rare uh, instance of yeah of this kind of challenge. And it underscores the responsibility that the translator has towards history. That's, that's wow. Exactly. We both felt a very strong sense of responsibility towards the history mm-hmm. of it. Mm-mm-mm. But you know, since Leon Cope was so so clearly against slavery, we didn't mm-hmm. feel it was inappropriate to use the more, yeah. I guess, modern and human mm-hmm. terms. But oof, yeah. what a yeah. what a challenge there. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, I guess yeah, the decision I guess kind of um, underscores his and, and reinforces his perspective. And it takes me back to what we were saying at the beginning of this recording that his French was very modern. Um, mm-hmm. to ties it in nicely. Very, wow, exactly. that's, that's unbelievable. Um, you mentioned at some point that there are other major stylistic challenges in this book. 
Oh, definitely. Those were a lot more fun than that one, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, again, you know, we were talking about how modern Yankou's style is, how well it flows, and, um, you know, his French was just a pleasure for us to read, and we wanted to keep some of that flavor in there. Um, mm-hmm. And so we had fun playing around with what bits of French we could scatter throughout the book. Um, for instance, there was a contemporary custom to Leon Kuhl to refer to people as Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. You know, instead of saying John said this or Thomas said that, you, you know, it's you know, being like John Adams or Thomas Jefferson. You say Mr. Adams mm-hmm. or Mr. Jefferson, no matter how well okay. you know them, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So instead of saying Mr. and Mrs., we kept it Monsieur and Madame and Monsieur, just to have a, you know little bits of French that everybody knows, no matter if they study French or not. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, yeah, we also kept the um, uncle spelling of place names, uh, you know, as a nod to the history. So cool. instead of Forty Mile Creek, we say Forty Mile Creek. Instead <laughs> of the Saint Lawrence River, it's the Saint Laurent River. Uh, mm-hmm. and Hudson's Bay instead of Hudson Bay. Um, cool. Just little bits like that. So it looks a little funny to me in places, but we wanted to be consistent, too, about how we addressed the French versus mm-hmm. what we changed to English. Uh, of course, and we keep some, some really the... obvious... Oh, sorry? No, I said, and of course, keep a little bit of the character, I assume, give it... Exactly, kind of exactly. Nice. Yeah. Leon, I mean, Leon Kuhl's style has, it, he has so much style. It's such a personal mm-hmm. style to him. So we really wanted to keep keep that alive a bit. Um, of course, we kept obvious exclamation, exclamations like, voila, hélas, <laughs> and pelle-mel was my favorite, pelle-mel. We use that in English all the time, but I had, for whatever reason, I just didn't know that that was also a French term. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I just we use it in English all the time, and so to me it was just an English word. Very <laughs> so, cool. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. Oh, in a few places we also had to add some footnotes. Just the the French source had had a few that Daniel Vaugelade added, but since the publisher intends to pitch this to readers who might pick it up at say gift shops at Monticello mm. and other historical sites. It, it just seemed right to add some of our own research to it to, to help a, a more American audience. Very cool. Um, so, for instance, there's the word Gould, G-O-U-R-D-E. We kept that in French in our translation. It's actually the modern term for Haitian currency, but oh. Gould was used at least as early as the beginning of the 18th century. So, you know, it's contemporary to the Yankul as a general term for a unit of money. Okay. So we kept that in. Um, wow. And, then it, and we added a footnote just to, to make it clear because it, I always found it, it was just too interesting to not mention. Um, yeah. Then in, in Chapter 9, uh, the first encounters with the Indians, the Yankul makes a sideways reference to some Monsieur Phipps et Garum, um, and mm-hmm. that might not immediately jump out to you even if you're well-versed in American history as the men involved in the, you can call it famous or infamous, Phelps and Gorham Purchase of 1788. It's a major purchase of preemptive rights to six million acres of Iroquois Confederacy land, um, which is, oh, wow. I say, 
it's probably infamous. It was just a, a very, you have to read more about it. It was a really strange mm-hmm. way that Americans took Native American land sort of, site, like in a, Whoa. In a sort of back entrance way um, yeah. to this preemption. But wow. we had a footnote about that just because it's, yeah. it's a really uh, significant historical event and it wasn't obvious and the uncle's mm. um, misspellings exactly what he meant. Oh, that's right. Yeah, now, I'm, I mean, for the listeners to understand, we're, 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 uh, Caroline and I are both looking at this on paper as we speak. So in French, it was spelt P-H-I-P-S? Mm-hmm, and Garum, D-A-R-U-M. Uh, that's the French for Leon okay. Um But okay. it's really felt like Michael Phelps and Gorham, okay. G-O-R-H-A-M. Those are the, okay. the men who did this purchase. Okay, so the American reader who would have studied American history and would have been familiar with the mm-hmm. U.S. English spelling might have not made the link directly with what Leon Cove wrote about. Exactly, exactly. Okay. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't obvious to me at all. I, again, mm-hmm. it was one of those places where I'm glad I worked with such a, such a good editor who, you know, our mm-hmm. skill sets complemented each other because he caught on quickly, and I just, it just went right over my head. Wow. So. Well, yeah. that's, yeah, again, underscoring the value of that. That's so awesome. Now, what about Yonko's life after he returned to France? Oh, that, I mean, as exciting as this book is, gosh, that, his life after returning to France uh, is almost more, more interesting, if it could get more interesting. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so Yonko, again, was from a family who was very strongly against despotism historically. Um, mm-hmm. But having been in the United States for so long, he absorbed a lot of the tenets of republicanism, and he returned to France even more determined to get rid of the monarchy. He he just thought, mm-hmm. you know, wow, that's it's not helpful, and we need to do something different. Um, mm-hmm. His chateau had luckily survived during his exile. He had some some folks helping him out with that, and. Uh, mm-hmm. He he set out to really put his money where his mouth was, so to speak. He relaunched the farm, you know, to get his cash flow going. And he brought in all kinds of technological innovations from England to um, build back up various, you know, farm-related businesses. And I'll give you a quick list here. Um, he created the École de Biancourt, which eventually mm-hmm. became the École des Arts et Métiers. Oh wow! Yeah. He also borrowed funds to borrowed funds himself to develop a, a new medical technique at the time, vaccination, uh, and introduced that to France. It became an immediate success. By his death, mm-hmm. um, I read that some 16 million French citizens had been vaccinated by the time he died. Whoa! Yeah, and he really, really got that going. Um, he also fought very hard for freedom of the press um, and was a strong opponent of the 1822 Loi Villel, which um, attempted to, to censor the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also was a co-founder of the first Caisse d'Epargne and the first social uh-huh. insurance funds, which operated by the yeah. same principles as our modern health insurance systems. I mean, he wow. had his hands in a little bit of everything. He really wanted to... I mean, I, to me, it's socialized mm-hmm. the economy, I guess you can say. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, he gave it the, the marks of what many 
would consider today's economy in France. Exactly, exactly. Um, so he really was a remarkable figure in French history, and so it was, it was very exciting to to translate this book and also learn so much about him too. Yeah. Well, that what an unbelievable opportunity, Carolyn. That's extraordinary. Um, oh yeah. I mean, it, the whole time I was working on this, I was thinking of this as like, man, if I had done a master's degree, this would have been the perfect capstone project. Oh my gosh! For, for all of my all of my education, you know, I studied. Mm-hmm. I got a degree in French, but I was about two classes away from getting a, a a double major in in political in politics, political history, and I I focused a lot on the development of politics and the and the philosophy behind democracy. Wow. So, it yeah, it was like a capstone project for me. Yeah. It draws in it draws on politics, on history, on culture, society mm-hmm. and language. I mean, I can't imagine what a privilege it must have been to to, to do the work you did. It's 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 really remarkable. Is there it, anything it, else yeah. you'd like to share? Oh sorry. Go ahead. Oh yes, yeah. So again it was a privilege to work on and um yeah. I have a small request for anyone who's listening. Um yes. if you can help. So we're about a mm-hmm. year overdue now for the print publication. You know, the book is it's ready. Okay. It's been ready. So this is the publication um, of your work, of your translation. Yes, yes. Um, okay. And so the publisher is waiting to find um, someone who's an academic, you know, professor with a focus on, on history or politics or, you know, every, anything related to this book who has current mm-hmm. ties to a solid university and mm-hmm. um, is willing to write the foreword for, for the book. Um, he's found a few people who are interested and willing, they just don't have the time. And that seems to be the holdup, is that we can't find someone who has the time to write okay. a foreword. Um, so if anyone who's listening knows someone who might be appropriate I would really mm-hmm. appreciate an introduction. Uh, you know, of course, it's not necessary, but it would be a, a, a lovely favor I could ask. <laughs> of course, of course, we're just we're just tossing a bottle out in there into the ocean. So, listeners, um, if you know anybody who would be interested in writing this forward, you can get in touch with Carolyn. You can get in touch with the French language division. Um, we'll bridge the be the bridge there. Um, anybody who you know might be related to this field um, and who's a, a university a university professor, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. The okay. publisher is very so, insistent on that point. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll be giving out the contact information for all of us at the end of um, this episode. But um, before we do that, Carolyn, um, thank you so much. This was a very interesting episode. Um, I feel like I would like to have this book in my stocking stuffers now. So I'm saying, <laughs> it sounds like this episode is going to go out right before the holidays. Um, oh, thank perfect. you so much for, for sharing this with us, with the listeners. Oh, we appreciate it oh, so much. Oh, it was a pleasure. It so was a pleasure. Uh, this is going to conclude. Um, yeah, the pl- pleasure was totally shared. 
Um, this will conclude our episode for today. Um, this is a podcast produced by the French Language Division of the American Translators Association. Our current, our current administrator is Yves Baudet, and our current assistant administrator is Jen Mercer. You can subscribe to the Continuing Education Series podcast on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash ATA FLD or on iTunes by searching for the words Continuing Education Series in the iTunes Store. You can contact the FLD at divisionfld at atanet.org. This is the address you can use to suggest um, somebody to write a foreword for the book, as uh, we just mentioned with our guest today. You can also visit our website at www.ata-divisions.org forward slash FLD, and those the last letters FLD need to be in all caps, or you can get in touch with us on social media. This is Angela Benoit signing off. Thank you for listening. À bientôt.